Well, please do turn in your Bibles, if you've got one to hand, to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We're continuing in our series in Romans 12. This evening, we'll be looking at verses 6 to 8. But we're going to read um, chapter 12, verses 1 to 13, page 947, if you're using a church Bible. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another." Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is the word of the Lord. If you could have uh, Romans 12 before you, that would be helpful. Let me just uh, read a few verses just to hone us in on what we're looking at this evening. So last time, a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at verses 3 to 5. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. And then Paul applies that, and it's this section 6 to 8 that we'll be looking at this evening. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Uh, when I was at primary school, the big obsession amongst all of us boys was, of course, football. Um, in fact, uh, teachers often seemed to be a bit confused about the purpose of school, which we knew to be a series of football matches punctuated by some rest time in the classroom. Uh, I don't know if you've watched uh, young boys playing football. There's a definite pattern to the game. Um, wherever the ball is, 
every player on the pitch, uh, hopefully with the exception of the goalkeeper, um, just goes charging after it as far as their little legs will carry them. Uh, someone kicks it up the other end and off they go again. And uh, over time, this little mass of footballers just moves around the pitch altogether um, following the ball. And it's only much later that you begin to realize that, of course, all of this works much better um, if some people stay more or less in certain parts of the pitch and do certain things according to what they're good at. Uh, some were good at scoring goals. They, of course, got all the glory. Um, you can hear in that the bitterness of a defender, can't you? <laughs> I couldn't score goals, but I could tackle. So, uh, so I was a defend. Defenders get no credit for goals that your team scores, but you get blamed when you concede them. So... Um, that's the position of a defender. Others could run all day and were best in midfield. Others were natural goalkeepers. Um, we all had just different abilities. And it was only when we learned to identify what they were, when we disciplined ourselves to act accordingly, that we actually became a team. We started to look last time at the, the image that Paul uses in various places of one body with many parts. And tonight he's developing it, this this. this powerful image. We get used to it, don't we? But it's a powerful image of, of unity in diversity. Um, remember the context, the whole pattern of Romans 12 is one of response to the grace of the gospel, but we're also following on from verse 3 in particular. We're not to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, but with sober judgment. We're to think of ourselves, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned, which we saw as a tricky expression, but we wondered uh, if it may mean that, that essentially the more faith that we have, the more soberly we're going to be thinking about ourselves. So that's the context for Paul's next comments in 6 to 8 about the gifts that God has given to His people. Paul knows perfectly well that the instinctive human tendency is just to be fairly chuffed with ourselves for our gifts, and to be fairly proud of the things that we can do. We discover we're good at something, and our hearts tell us, and the world um, around encourages us to be pretty pleased with ourselves. So, Paul wants to counter that by pointing out that these are gifts of grace. They're, they're not natural to us. They're not generated by us. They're things that have been given to us. When we talk about our gifts. We're not talking about all the wonderful things that we are giving to everyone else. We're talking about the things that God has given to us for the benefit of the whole church family. They're given by God. Verse 6, he says, we have gifts that differ according to the grace given us. And so the irony is that a proper understanding of, of gifts and where they come from and what they're given for leads us not in the direction of pride, but in exactly the opposite direction. It leads to humility, because all the gifts are given by God, and it leads to a recognition of a, of a fundamental equality among believers who have all been given a part to play. We have a, we have a place on the team along with everyone else. Eugene Peterson brings out something of it in the message. Part of this passage uh, reads like this in the message. Since we find ourselves fashioned into all these excellently formed and marvelously functioning parts in Christ's body, let's just go ahead and be what we were made to be without enviously or pridefully comparing ourselves with each other or trying to be something we're not. Let's just be what God has called us to be. Do what God has called us to do. So, how, how then should we approach this subject of gifts? Here's the first thing to say. We're all charismatics. Did you know that? You maybe didn't realize you were. You maybe don't feel like one. You maybe don't look like one. But if you're a Christian, you are one, even if you're also a Presbyterian. It's amazing. 
What Paul says in verse 6 is that by the charis of God, we all have different charismata. By the charis, the grace, the free gift of God, we all have charismata or gifts. Remember that he's speaking here, verse 3, to everyone among you, all of you. You have gifts. You've all received charismata. Um, I guess that that word charismatic uh, may conjure up a number of different images in our minds. It's come to be associated, of course, with uh, something called the charismatic movement. Uh, I don't want to get sucked into that debate for too much of our time, but I do think it's worth saying something about this and about the different emphasis uh, that we would want to take in contrast to, to what are commonly called charismatic churches, churches that identify with that approach. Um, there tends to be a particular emphasis upon some of the gifts of the Spirit and their place in the Christian life. Uh, and I just want to make a couple of comments. Um, the first thing that has to be said is that Christian believers, when I say that, Christian believers who are charismatic in their theology are our brothers and sisters. We need to recognize that. Um, where we have a common understanding of the core things of the gospel, where there's agreement about what Christ has done for us in His death, in our place, for our sins as an atoning sacrifice, where there's agreement about His call to repentance and faith, then we're one with our brothers and sisters. That's why in certain ways we might work alongside sometimes um, congregations with whom we disagree on, on a number of issues. These are not unimportant issues. They have a significant impact on Christian living and on the health of the Christian life. But at the same time, they don't go to the very heart of the Christian gospel, and so we don't break fellowship over them. And since Christian unity is not just about agreeing with each other in general, but about unity in Christ and in His gospel, we enjoy fellowship with these, our fellow believers, and we give thanks to God for them and we pray for them. Nevertheless, uh, we would still insist that the charismatic movement has generally been characterized by an unhealthy emphasis on uh, particularly the more spectacular gifts of the Holy Spirit, and, and by some theological misunderstandings concerning what gifts we should expect to see as a normal part of Christian experience and church life. The charismatic emphasis often falls on two or three gifts in particular and tends to neglect more helpful approaches to Christian discipleship. I'm focusing on the, what we call the ordinary means of grace. Sometimes it elevates certain gifts to a place that they, they clearly should not have. So you're not really a Christian unless you speak in tongues, for example, which is just plainly unbiblical. Um, at other times, they're just given an emphasis and a prominence that they shouldn't have. In this passage, where Paul's, Paul's directly addressing the subject of, of gifts, the primary feature of these charismata is not that they're spectacular. The primary thing is that they're gifts of service. This is all about serving other people, meeting the needs of others, giving to others. Um, you know, I've only been a minister for nine years, so, so I guess I can wait and hope, but it's a funny thing that nobody has ever come up to me and said, you know, I really feel very, very strongly that I have been given the gift of generosity. And I demand the right to exercise that gift. And I want you to, to advise me how, how, how at every opportunity I can be, can be as generous as possible because I've been given this gift. Nobody's ever said that. I've heard people say, I demand the right to use my gift, but never that one. 
strange thing, isn't it? We'll see in a moment that 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 whole attitude betrays a failure to understand what spiritual gifts are about at all. Um, I also need to say one of the great difficulties of what's often referred to as charismatic Christianity is that there is simply an unhealthy focus on the Holy Spirit Himself. Now, we want to focus on the Holy Spirit to a degree. We want to know the the Spirit, know His work. the place of the Spirit is of immense importance in the church and in the Christian life, but the Bible is very, very clear. If there's one thing the Bible is clear about, about the Holy Spirit, it is that His great work and His great desire is to point us to Jesus Christ and through Him to God. And so, we spend all our time focused on the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit this, Holy Spirit that, we, we've missed the point. The Holy Spirit is to lead us to Christ, to shine the spotlight on Him. And, and the true sign of the presence of God's Spirit among His people is not that you can feel or sense His presence somehow. It's not that spectacular things are happening. It's not that you, you get a certain feeling um, uh, because of the worship. The way you know the Spirit is present and at work is this, where Christ is being exalted where He is being seen for who He is, where the grace of the gospel is being communicated with clarity and power, where the call to repentance and faith is being heard and heeded, and men and women are being transformed into the likeness of Christ, and together shaped into a radical new community of mutual submission and service, and where through all of this God is being glorified, that's the Holy Spirit at work. As far as the specific gifts are concerned, in verses 6 to 8, most of them speak for themselves, um, serving, teaching, leading, and so on. These are, in a sense, the specifics are not the point. These are examples being given to illustrate the principle that whatever our gifts are, we're to use them. If this is your gift, use it. Um, But I suppose I should probably say something about prophecy, shouldn't I? Uh, Prophecy in the Bible is not not always, not even usually about foretelling the future. It's about someone speaking a message received directly from God. It seems that in the New Testament, there were still prophets, uh, although what they said was not infallible. God's people were called to test prophecy. Here, Paul says, he uses a curious expression. He says in verse 6 that those with the gift of prophecy should use it in proportion to our faith. Um, More literally, it says that the gift of prophecy is to be used according to the measure of the faith. And it is the faith, not your faith or my faith, his faith or their faith. Or It is according to the measure of the faith, um, which suggests to me that it means the faith in the sense of the Christian faith, the substance of what we believe. So, prophets in the New Testament era are being told to exercise their gift, not being told to exercise it in line with how much faith they have, but to exercise it in line with the faith of the church, to test their prophecy against the gospel as it's been revealed, uh, the gospel of Christ as we, as we know it. If you're a prophet, Paul's saying to the Romans, if you're a prophet, don't think you can pronounce whatever you like. If you believe God has given you a message to deliver, then first test it, measure it against the faith, test it against what He's already revealed of Himself and the gospel. I think that's the most likely Um, explanation of what Paul's saying here. So, that's what prophecy is, but we also take the view that prophecy 
along with apostleship, was what is, what is sometimes called a foundation gift. Ephesians 2.20 is a really important verse. Paul refers to God's household being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Those gifts are, are, are marked out as foundation gifts. They're there to lay a foundation for the church. And the point of a foundation, um, I hope that this will happen soon enough, uh, that a foundation will be laid. And, and hopefully what you do is you lay it once and then you leave it alone. We, we hope not to have to touch the foundation ever again. Um, the foundation goes in and that's a, that's a, that's a one-off event. And then it stops. Why would that happen? Well, it's perfectly logical why it would happen. When the New Testament was completed and the whole Bible given by God to His people as a complete and sufficient revelation of Himself and His ways, then the whole purpose of prophecy and apostleship was completed. The foundation was completed. A finished Bible means they're simply not needed anymore because we have all we need right here. And so I believe strongly that we should not expect to see those gifts, apostleship and prophecy, in the church today. But that's enough charismatic controversy for one evening. Let's get back to the, the main thrust, the main focus of these uh, verses. We've received gifts, says Paul, all of us. We're all charismatics in that proper sense, holders of charismata. So the question becomes, what's the significance of these gifts and how should we rightly view them, particularly in the context of Romans 12, responding to the gospel, seeking to be true worshipers, seeking to think of ourselves soberly? What are we to do with the gifts of the Spirit? Well, a couple of very simple statements. This is the first. Um, others need you. Others need you. Gifts are given to individuals but they are not for individuals. They are for the church. God has given these gifts to His people, um, but you're the only one that's actually holding the particular set of gifts that you have. Others may have a similar type of gift, but they don't have it in the same way that you do, and they won't exercise it in the same way that you will. You've been given something which, is, which belongs to all the people of God and something without which the body will not function as it should. And so, others need you. They need you to pass on to them the gift which God has given in order to make His people into the body He designed them to be. So, you have a unique role to play in the life of God's people. Um, there, are, there are dangers, aren't there? There are pitfalls, two equal and opposite errors that we need to avoid. Um, the first is the one I mentioned there. We recognize certain gifts in ourselves, and we demand the right to use them. Um, betraying the fact that we haven't understood anything of what I said about the nature of gifts as, as things given for service, um, where you find yourself angrily demanding the right to serve other people. Something, something's gone wrong there. That's, that's not right at all. So, and, and actually, it's a true, I say this from experience, it is a truly terrible thing when Christians decide that they have gifts and they will be using them, thank you very much, whether or not anybody else has recognized that gift in them and whether or not there's any need for that gift to be exercised and whether or not anybody is benefiting in any way from the exercise of it. It's a very ugly thing. Gifts need to be exercised not in a cavalier way, but in a humble spirit of service. And then, of course, the other possibility is that we go to the other extreme. We effectively either deny that we have any gifts at all 
or, or whatever we've been given, we, you know, we keep it here. We don't have anything to contribute. Now, I need to be careful. It, it varies with time and circumstance, doesn't it? There are, there are points in life where you exercise gifts in one particular way and other points where, where it changes. Uh, and that's fine. That's good. Um, but the, 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 although the manner of our service will change with circumstance, our default should be that we're expecting to be serving others in the church by the use of our gifts. And we're thinking in those terms. We're thinking, how can I serve? Um, how can I be a blessing to my brothers and sisters? Well, what does that mean in practical terms? It's mostly fairly obvious. Um, I guess in order, if you're going to be using your gifts, you need to know what they are. So, uh, the whole basis of Paul's exhortation here is, if your gift is X, then do X. Um, so, we need to know what they are, and in practice, that is mainly about listening, not to yourself, but to others. Um, not usually the best judges of our own gifts. People may or may not say to you, uh, you know, I think you've got a real spiritual gift of such and such, but they might say to you, you know, you're really good at that. Or you really have a heart for that, don't you? And, and those kind of things are, you know, can be significant. This whole thing of identifying gifts, I don't want to overstate this because Christians sometimes tie themselves in knots over this. You know, I found a survey on the internet, 200-page survey that's going to tell me what all my spiritual gifts are. You know, people get caught up in that kind of thing, and, and, and they get tied in knots, and they get, you know, I'm not, just basically don't do anything until I've got some kind of definitive answer from, no, it's not helpful. God is very practical in this. The, the people He's made us to be, the work He's called us to do, the gifts He's given us to use, these things tend to come together. These things tend to unite in us. Um, to, get, to give us the part that we have to play. Our gifts will often fit in with the natural skills and interests that we have, the heart that we have. They'll often correspond with a need in the church. And, but there's one key thing above all others that we need to remember, which is this principle of service. And, and I think probably the most helpful thing I have ever read in my life about the use of spiritual gifts is what Vaughn Roberts says in his book, True Worship. This is, this is what he says. Some Christians seem to be paralyzed. Rather than serving others, they are waiting to discover what their gift is. The right question to ask is not so much, what is my gift, as how can I serve? How can I serve? As soon as we see a possible area of service that we could fill, we should get moving. And insofar as God uses that service for the good of the church, we are exercising a spiritual gift. Yeah, a good place to start, isn't it? If we all... In, in the fellowship of the church, if we all came to this fellowship with that attitude of heart, how can I serve? How can I be a blessing uh, to my brothers and sisters here? And when we, we find that, then we, we nurture and we develop these things. The, um, the, the way that gifts develop is through use. Through use. It's like muscles. We use them and they grow, and they strengthen. And, and, and there's a great sense of that in these verses. Paul just more or less gives us a kick to, to get going, you know? If you're a teacher, then teach. If you're an encourager, encourage. If you're a leader, lead. Go exercise the muscle. And so it is that our gifts will be fully used to the benefit of the church and to the glory of God. Um, 
I think, I, I think I've quoted this before from John Stott, but this is worth hearing again. Um, just such a simple and challenging perspective on the use of our gifts. I love the way he phrases this. He says, I am a unique person. My uniqueness is due to my genetic endowment, my inherited personality and temperament, my parentage, upbringing, education, my talents, inclinations, and interests, my new birth and spiritual gifts. By the grace of God, I am who I am. And this is the question he then asks. How can I, as the unique person God has made me, be stretched in the service of Christ and of others so that nothing He has given me is wasted and everything He has given me is used? Isn't that a good way to look at that? How can I be stretched in the service of Christ and others so that nothing He has given me is wasted and everything He has given me is used? look different for all of us, but for all of us, it will have this in common. It will mean fundamentally service. It will mean sacrifice and cost. The gifts are not about glory, but others need you. We need you. But you maybe know what I'm about to say next, don't you? The other side of the same coin is that you need others. You need others. For some of us, the hard bit is not accepting that others need us. We're, we're okay with that. You know, we're, we're okay with coming. We want to contribute. Um, but for some of us, the hard thing is accepting that we can't do this ourselves. We need other people alongside us. We want to be strong and self-sufficient, but, but God won't have that. God says, no, that's not my purpose for you. I don't want you strong and self-sufficient. I want you, I want you dependent on me, but I want you also dependent on one another because I'm creating a new community in my church. God's kingdom is built one at a time, but the, the, the idea of an individual believer is, is just a, an anomaly as far as the Bible's concerned. We become part of the community, and there's a reason for that. The alternative is that, you know, you, we, we just look to self. We try to be individual Christians. We're cut off from the church. We're self-sufficient. Um, do you know the Greek word for uh, something that is your own? Um, the Greek word is idios where we get the word idiot. In, in, in Greek understanding, an idiot is a person turned in on self. I, I can do this. I'm okay. don't need anyone else. That, that's idiocy because it's not how human beings were designed to live. And it's certainly not how God intends His new creation to be. God knows that we need each other for fellowship and for accountability, and for encouragement, and, and all sorts of things. And, and we need to apply this. If you take, take these example gifts here, we need to apply them in two ways. We need to say, well, you know, can I be serving others? Can I be teaching? Can I be doing these things? But we also need to recognize, actually, there are going to be times when I need to be served, when I need to be taught, when I need to be learned, to be, in, to, to be, uh, to be um, served, to be encouraged, to be shown mercy, when I need to be the recipient of these gifts. Sometimes we're doing the doing, and sometimes we're doing the having it done for us, and that's, that's good. That's how it should be. But isn't it great? Isn't it wonderful that God has so arranged things in His church that we need one another and that none of us can stand alone? It's an antidote to pride. It destroys 
spiritual arrogance. You can't do it yourself. You were never designed to do it yourself. We need one another. For this, finally, this is how the body of Christ is built up. It's built up as we offer up in service the part that we've been given and accept from others the service of the part that they've been given. And together as we do this, we come to know Christ more and we come to reflect Christ more. There's a, there's a story I love from, uh, from the life of C.S. Lewis. He gives a great illustration um, of this. There was a, a particular friendship between uh, C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, and a man called Charles Williams, uh, these, these writers who knew one another. And, uh, and, and Charles Williams died. And Lewis was... Um, you know, he mourned the death of his friend, but, but he wrote later, he said, at the time, um, I, I made an assumption. I assumed that because Charles was gone, Tolkien and I would become closer. I, I made the assumption that, in a sense, to put it this way, I would get more of Tolkien than I had before. And what I discovered was that I got less. I got less of him because there were aspects of J.R.R. Tolkien that only Charles Williams could bring out. There were aspects of him that, that didn't come out just in relationship with me. It needed Williams there to bring out this side of his personality. So when he was gone, I got less of Tolkien than I had when he was there. We're here, to, we're here to know Christ, and we need one another. There are things in Christ that you can draw out for me that I cannot draw out myself. The, the, the limitless riches and beauty and glory of His character are such that we need one another to even begin to explore Him and come to know Him. You, you've known this experience of sitting in a Bible study or sitting with another Christian and they say something and you go, why have I never seen that before? That's absolutely right. And, and, and we, need, we need thousands upon thousands of one another in countless assembly to encounter Christ as He is and to know Him as He is. Because, because He is so magnificent and multifaceted and inexhaustible in the beauty of His character. And, and we certainly need one another in all of, all of the richness of our diversity to begin to reflect Christ more and more fully. Imagine, um, imagine claiming yourself to be the body of Christ. Just, just kind of try on that phrase. Try imagine saying, I, I am the body of Christ. You know, Christ is reflected here. You know, but here, Christ is forming His body in a way that he, he, he can't do in one individual, won't do in one individual until we all come to reflect Him fully. God brings together all His people with all their charismata, and He forms them together into a church which reflects and befits the beauty of His Son. It's all ultimately a part of the gospel because, uh, because of the work of Christ and by the power of His Spirit, 
God is building His church, and He's preparing and enabling us together to reflect the character of His Son. Look again at this list, verses 6 to 8. Who's the perfect prophet? Who is the ultimate servant, teacher, encourager, giver? Who is our leader? Who has shown us mercy? Gifts of the Spirit are, are wonderful things because they're, they're not just gifts from the Spirit, but they're gifts that reflect who the Holy Spirit is, which means they're gifts that reflect who Christ is. And so Christ is forming Himself and His people by the gifts of the Spirit. We reflect Him together. We're called as individuals to be Christ-like, but in a, in a different and deeper way, we reflect Him together. It happens when, in view of God's mercy, we offer up our bodies as living sacrifices, transformed by the renewing of our minds, thinking of ourselves with sober judgment. And when He takes each individual one of us and forms us together into one fellowship of people willingly and eagerly serving one another through His varied gifts of grace. That's at least part of what it means to live the transformed life. Let's pray. God, our Father, help us to have a right attitude to this, we pray, to recognize Your goodness in giving gifts to Your people, to recognize with an appropriate humility that You have uh, given gifts to everyone among us for the service of the body. We pray that You would, whatever our individual gifts may be, we pray that we would all be servants, that we would all have more and more this heart of, of coming and asking, how can I serve? What can I do for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, for the blessing of the church, for the glory of Christ and the extension of His kingdom? How can I give to this in response to all that Christ has given for me and to me? Mark these things in as we pray to your glory. And in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.